Can you win a trade war? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Dan Griswold. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with Dan Griswold. Dan is a senior research fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University and co-director of its Trade and Immigration Project. He's a nationally recognized expert on trade and immigration policy. He's authored numerous studies, testified before congressional committees, commented for CNBC, C-SPAN, and other TV and radio outlets, and written articles for the Wall Street Journal, the Los Angeles Times, and other publications. He is also the author of the 2009 book, Mad About Trade, Why Main Street America Should Embrace Globalization. Dan, welcome to The Curious Task. Alex, glad to be with you. So Dan, in each episode, we usually start with a question and just go wherever the answers in the conversation takes us. Our question today is, can you win a trade war? But before we get right into that, how about you paint a picture for us about what Donald Trump's administration's trade war has looked like so far and some of its effects at a high level? We'll drill deeper, of course, as we go along. But I think before we get into specifics, you should just Tell us the the saga so far. Yes. Well, first off, it shouldn't be a great surprise. Trade is one of the few issues President Trump has been consistent on in his public pronouncements, really for 30 years or more. I have to say consistently wrong. Uh, He was warning us uh, in the 1980s that Japan was going to steamroll the United States. We had these huge deficits and they're stealing our industry. And, Mm -hmm. you know, now you can just kind of cut and paste China into that. So we all knew, those of us from a free trade, free market perspective, that Donald Trump uh, was going to be trouble on trade. It was pretty quiet his first year in office. Uh, I think they were concentrating on getting tax reform passed, and they did successfully in December 2017, almost on cue. Uh, so here, the trade war. It really started the first, the Fort Sumner, Sumner of the, the trade war was uh, January of 2018. Uh, and I'm going to use some terms for U.S. trade law. Uh, but we have a, a section of the trade law called Section 201. And that's for uh, import surges. It's a safeguard provision. Canada probably has its version of it. Um, The administration approved tariffs, significant tariffs on imported solar panels and washing machines, clothes washing machines. In uh, March of 2018, a Section 232 investigation, national security investigation of steel imports found According to the administration's logic, but I don't think according to any uh, acceptable logic about what national security really stands for, (laughs) they found that imported steel and aluminum, and guess what, from Canada uh, and other countries, uh, poses a national security threat to the United States. How can you send an army out into the field if they don't have steel? Never mind that our military accounts for 3% of domestic steel consumption, and we have plenty of capacity for it. And then the trade war really got rolling with, are you ready for another uh, trade law section, Alex, uh, section 301. Uh, And that gives the president fairly broad but defined powers to impose tariffs against other countries that are dealing and trading unfairly with the United States. Well, there's there's some grist there with China, isn't there? Uh, But the administration went far beyond the law 
and started, uh, first they imposed duties on $50 billion of imports from China. China retaliated, no surprise, we can get into that a little bit later. And then the president, as he often does, doubled down, quadrupled down. All of a sudden, uh, by uh, the end of the year, the U.S. had imposed significant tariffs. And if I remember right, about $360 billion of imports from China. So really, that, that first year, 2018 into 2000, 2019, uh, we were in a, a full-blown trade war, not just with China, but a number of trading partners. And then, of course, they all retaliated, Canada included. Again, no surprise. And so, Alex, that, uh, that is the Trump trade war uh, in an abbreviated historical description. No, I think that's a great start so we can get right into it. You, you, you actually, uh, to sort of put a finer point on that intro, I guess, in, in an article you wrote for The Hill, the article was titled, we'll put it in our episode notes as well so our audience can go see, but I'll read it here as well. It was called, Only Congress Can End the China Trade War Quagmire. Uh, you said, if this were a real war, we would call it a quagmire with mounting casualties. So it's clearly clearly not good results so far. Yeah, well, you know, uh, I suppose a silver lining in the Trump trade war and and the effective tariff rate of the United States uh, has more than doubled. It was relatively low, although not zero. Um, but a silver lining is, hey, we've had a real world experiment. Let, let's see if what these free trade economists have been telling us over the years about rising prices and disrupted supply chains are really true. And, and you know what, Alex? Uh, we... We free trade economists were right. I sort of hate to say it. Um, <clears throat> so there have been several studies of the effect of the Trump trade war. Uh, the National Bureau of Economic Research, uh, the New York Fed, and our Federal Reserve Banks have research staffs as well. The Congressional Budget Office uh, looked at the effects. And uh, there's some variation in the models, but they all come down squarely saying uh, one, uh, the trade war has uh, subtracted from gross domestic product. So yes, there's winners and losers in trade. Uh, the steel industry, at least for a, a while, was better off. The washing machine industry, some industries that compete with imports from China, but the nation as a whole is worse off. Um, prices have gone up for uh, consumers and perhaps more damaging economically, at least now, for uh, import-consuming businesses, disrupted supply chains. This has had a negative effect. Uh, before the coronavirus hit, U.S. manufacturing had actually been slowing. And in some key states like Michigan and Ohio, uh, Pennsylvania, they'd actually lost manufacturing jobs. So, you know, uh, Alex, for every employed steel worker in the United States, there are 30 or 40 workers in steel consuming industries, hmm. uh, the automobile industry for one, uh, the construction industry, and those jobs were negatively impacted by the tariffs. So uh, yes, we have a trade war. Uh, it has been costly. You know, our president likes to tweet, you've probably noticed. Uh, <laughs> Just a little I, bit. <laughs> I think about a year and a half ago, he tweeted something like, if I may have this quoted exactly right, trade wars are good and easy to win. Uh, I think if we've learned anything from the last couple of years, trade wars are expensive. 
Uh, they're not easy to win. I often describe free trade as a win-win for all countries that engage in it. Trade wars are a lose-lose, and we are seeing that every day. And actually, you just started touching on some of the positives and the, and the benefits of globalization, ultimately international trade. And that, that's where I want to head next. Let's do that because uh, you touched on COVID and the crisis. But I want to put that aside for a second because I think that no conversation about trade, regardless of how many times it's been said, uh, should, should not touch on an overview of some of the benefits. Uh, and then through some of your articles you've written on the topic, I've collected a few. Obviously, this is not an exhaustive list, but I'd like to go into a few of them. In a few of your articles, you mentioned that even aside from the the uh, economic benefits, a form of international trade and globalization ultimately encourages a more peaceful world because of the economic interdependence. And I just want to hear you elaborate a bit on that. Yes. And this isn't certainly an original argument with me. It's actually been around. You go back to uh, you know 150 years ago with Richard Cobden, the great uh, free trade advocate uh, in Britain. He, he said it wasn't just good economically, but it uh, encourage nations to get along with each other. Uh, and and the, the reason, the theory behind it is if you have strong commercial ties with another country, it, it raises the cost of war, right? Wars are costly anyway to the treasury, um, blood and gold from the treasury, but also they're damaging commercially. <laughs> it's it's bad for foreign investment and trade. I'm 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 laughing and war is a serious thing, but I'm, it's so obvious mm-hmm. uh, that that war is bad for business ultimately. And we have some experience with that, don't we, Alex? Uh, you know, the 1930s uh, were uh, an economically damaging time, but also a time of a lot of global discontent. And there's some uh, argumentation, and I think it has resonance, that the economic problems of the 1930s fueled the extremism in Germany and led uh, to the war. There were lots of other things, but I think the Great Depression, uh, and we can get into Smoot-Hawley and all that uh, later on in the program, Mm -hmm. uh, but that led to uh, uh, real wars between countries. And conversely, coming out of World War II, One of the lessons, and the United States was part of the leadership, Canada, uh, the the, uh, revived Europe, that if the Western powers, and including Japan, uh, could normalize and institutionalize their trading relationship with each other, war would be less likely. Now, wars still happen. We have violent extremism and all that. But Alex, wouldn't you say the idea of a of a world war between the major Western powers of Western Europe, Japan, the United States is pretty much unthinkable today. And I think trade is Mm -hmm. part of that. So I I believe in free trade. I feel good about arguing for it for many reasons. And one of them is it really has given us a more peaceful world. There are, uh, my final point is uh, there are organizations that study human conflict. And again, while you've got violence going on around the world, the number of people dying uh, on a regular basis in wars, either civil or between countries, is actually at something of a historic low. And I think trade and globalization is part of that. And uh, another benefit, if we'll move on to that, is uh, is you 
basically summed it up in a variety of ratings that, that I saw from you, it, this idea of risk diversification. This is more of a narrow economic benefit rather than a broader yes. sort of uh, international relations benefit. But, but ultimately, I guess uh, it's easy for one to sort of picture in their head if, let's say, I got all my bread from your house, Dan, as an example, yes. and, and your house burnt down, um, you know, obviously, where, where would my bread come from? But if I'm getting my bread from potentially 10 potential houses that I'm buying from or, or entrepreneurs, let's say, um, you, there, there's a, not only your price, we should probably prices be lower, but also if your house burns down, God forbid, uh, I, I'm still in an okay position. This is a micro example and actually a rather silly one, but I think that's really what, what you meant when you talk about diversification, risk diversification in your writings, correct? That yeah. uh, the, the world and nations can effectively diversify their risk with more globalization and trade. Yeah. Uh, Alex, that's a good summary there. We all know, you know, as investors, it's good to diversify your portfolio, not put all your eggs in one basket, right? Well, globalization is, is about that. And, and this touch on both the national security and the COVID-19 crisis, which of course were, is on everybody's mind right, right now. There's an argument here in the United States, and maybe you have it in Canada too, that, oh, this is what we get when we rely on imports and supply chains. We need to repatriate them and make all this stuff at home. Well, you you're, can be set up for disruptions there too. Right. Um, and actually, when you look at our supply, and of course, a lot, a lot of focus is on China, and uh, you can't talk about trade and globalization without talking about China. Let, let's focus in on one, one example, Alex, pharmaceuticals um, and medical supplies. People in the United States are saying, we're, we're too dependent on China for these things. Well, we do import uh, a lot of things from China that are medical supplies, masks, and things like that, uh, as well as uh, not only final drugs, but active pharmaceutical ingredients that go into the drugs. But when you look at, uh, first, where else do we import these kind of things from? And top of the list isn't China. It's countries like Ireland, Switzerland, Germany, uh, Canada's somewhere they're high on the list. These are not problematic import partners. These are developed Western democracies that are also our allies. We shouldn't have any problem importing from those countries and importing from a variety of those countries. And then also you have to look, what's the share of imports of your domestic production? And when it comes to the broad bundle of medical supplies and pharmaceuticals, it turns out here in the United States, we produce about 70% of everything we consume. We import the other 30%, and that's from a broad range of suppliers, of which China is one. And I would just say, what's wrong with that? Uh, one, you can have disruptions domestically, can't you? Um, you know, uh, <clears throat> you can have uh, domestic flu season, things like that, or weather events, or other things that uh, disrupt domestic production. Of course, Alex, this, this applies to agriculture too, right? You can have crop failures. You're better off as individuals, as a company, as a nation, sourcing from multiple sources, close to home, but far from home as, as well. Are we going to learn some lessons from the COVID-19 uh, disruption? Yes. Uh, one of them might be, maybe it's good to have a little more stockpile of inventory 
maintain just just in time inventory for all the reasons but have a little more stockpile you can have strategic national stockpiles which we do here in the united states and maybe rely less on a problematic source and diversify i'll just give you one example uh, you remember the fukushima tsunami of 2011 yes i won't go into all the details but the, there were certain supplies for the automobile industry that were located in that area of Japan. A good lesson in globalization, a few days after the disaster in March 2011, you had auto plants in the United States closing down because uh, that area was uh, the single source for a certain product. Well, they've diversified their supply chains. It's not a government-forced retreat from globalization. It's just the people in the market, consumers, producers, learning the lessons and more intelligently diversifying their risk. That's what the market's all about. We don't need government to force us uh, to change in ways that don't make economic sense. Right. Yeah. And I guess, as, as you just said at the end there, that another way of looking at that is just that it's further diversification, right? It doesn't mean that yes. you don't rely on another company in a different country for a certain set of products or, or whatever the case may be. It simply means that maybe you can rely on two or three other countries and maybe even some domestic production. It's still further diversification the way I see it. Correct. I, I, I spoke to a supply chain expert the other day at a university and he said in the supply chain world, basically three suppliers will give you the diversity. The, the rule of thumb is three different suppliers. Well, we've got more than that for a lot of these subjects. So it's a, like so many uh, uh, critiques of trade and globalization, this one is a, is a straw man that's actually pretty easily knocked down. Shifting gears a little bit to an, another one of the benefits of globalization, in one of your articles, you brought up the point that according to the United Nations, in the past three decades of rapid globalization, global life expectancy has climbed from 64.2 years in 1990 to 72.6 years in 2019. And further, in the same period, rates of child and age-adjusted adult mortality fell sharply. A forced retreat from globalization would put these gains in jeopardy. And this is from an article you wrote on the Mercatus website. We're going to put the article in the episode notes, but th that's pretty serious business too, right? This isn't yes. j just a, a direct economic well-being effect. This is obviously, quite frankly, life well-being that we're talking about now. A globalized world is helping people live longer. Yes, yes. You know, Alex, and I think earlier in that article, I, I also pointed out in, in our lifetimes, so certainly in mine, uh, but probably in yours as well, going back over the last 30 years, uh, we global poverty has fallen by over a billion people. The percentage of people living in absolute poverty around the world is is down from I think something like thirty percent to below ten percent. And of course, that has lots of positive uh, ramifications for people's health, and that that's where those numbers come in. And the point I was making, of course, Alex, that applies to the populations of Canada and the United States and the developed uh, countries as well. Yes, we have problems, opioid suicides, that sort of thing, but we are healthier than we were 30 years or 50 years ago. Medical technology has a lot to do with that, lots of things in there, but one reason is increased living standards because of globalization. And my, my point is, if you roll back globalization uh, over some misguided reaction to the COVID-19 crisis, you are in a very tragic irony 
going to make people less healthy in the long run. We have the resources we have to combat pandemics uh, in large part because of uh, the gains from globalization, the movement of ideas. Uh, we haven't talked about immigration, but having uh, trained medical personnel be able to immigrate to Canada and the United States, research professionals at our universities, put that all together. And that's a, a very powerful argument, not for retreating on globalization, but finding uh, and intelligent ways to let it go forward. And, and we've hinted at it a few times right now. So, so, so let's just jump right in then. The idea of talking about trade during a crisis, and obviously the best case study is one we're living right now, unfortunately, right, is, is the COVID-19 pandemic. So uh, when you sort of mix the ingredients of free a free trade discussion with a crisis discussion like COVID-19 yes. especially uh, this whole idea of dependency comes up we touched on it before but now we'll attack it from a bit of a different angle I think so some have actually been saying that this whole thing this whole COVID-19 situation has actually proven that the U.S. is too dependent on trade with China specifically um, they say look at this the supply chains have been in, in some ways disturbed and in other ways people have said Freedom of movement is responsible for a lot of the spread and things like that. So ultimately, look, there's a problem. The free market economists and people that believe things like that, they, they're they wrong. Look at the risk here. There's a really good quote that uh, from one of your articles. I laughed when I read it. I loved it. You said, well, to argue that the coronavirus means we would be better off with less globalization is like arguing that a power failure shows we are too dependent on electricity and that we should go back to private generators and candles. Yes, and I've uh, taken a little heat for that. Some people either love it uh, or or they, they hate it, but I think it's essentially true. You know, uh, you could say the same thing for the internet. We're more vulnerable to, to disruption. Um, we're vulnerable to spyware and things like that, but it unquestionably has made our life better. Right. And the 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 public policy challenge isn't to roll it back, but to plug up those little holes or to find ways to make ourselves less vulnerable to a disruption uh, going forward. And yes, the, the coronavirus has disrupted supply chains. You know, it, it's, it's funny, Alex, I mentioned uh, a little while back some of those studies on the impact of the Trump trade war. In magnitude, it's pretty similar to the effect of the coronavirus. <laughs> uh, the coronavirus may be greater now, but the studies a month ago or so were saying it's going to shave about half a point off GDP. I think it's going to be more than that. But my point is uh, protectionism is kind of an intellectual virus that has the same effect. Mm -hmm. You know, the fact that the coronavirus has um, disrupted supply chains and the movement of people uh, really should remind us of how valuable those things are and why our policies should allow those to go forward in whichever way people choose to go forward and not, it would be, again, a tragic irony if we cut ourselves off from, from the benefits of globalization, just as it would be from the internet and electricity uh, in response to a, to a disruption. Let, let me just say, you mentioned travel. That's the one aspect of globalization that does bear some responsibility uh, for the coronavirus, doesn't it? I mean, if people just wouldn't travel from one country to another, we'd be a lot better at containing the virus. Mm -hmm, now, of course, mm -hmm. would we give up the freedom of Canadians, of Americans to travel around the world? Uh, I would say no. Again, it's a trade-off, isn't it? It's managing the risk. 
we could cut automobile deaths to zero every year if we gave up driving. But there's a benefit from uh, driving. The challenge is to just make it safer. And so I would say with travel, you look at international travel and the numbers are astounding. I don't, I think they might be in one of my articles there, but uh, we've had an explosion. While globalization has uh, expanded in all areas, you know, you think of uh, international investment, trade and goods and services, the movement of people, uh, it, it has grown in all those areas, but it's grown really exponentially in terms of international travel. And immigration is just a small slice of that. So here, I don't know what the numbers are in Canada. I bet they're similar. But here in the United States, uh, we accept about a million immigrants a year permanently. Give them green cards, right? Say so you can live in America permanently. We have 80 million people coming in temporarily, most of them as tourists, uh, business travelers, students. This is a great blessing. Uh, and you, the irony is that's the one channel through which the COVID-19 virus did spread. It wasn't because we were importing shirts and furniture from China. Right. Um, and, and that's the aspect of globalization that the critics probably complain about least. Uh, one, we, we run a big trade surplus. I don't think trade surpluses matter one way or the other, but the critics of trade seem to care a lot about it. We, ha we have a big trade surplus in this country in terms of travel and transportation. Uh, and somehow the critics weren't complaining about the one channel where the COVID virus really did come in. Of course, the answer there is, again, isn't to uh, choke international travel when things get back to normal. It's to screen passengers more intelligently, to be more on the ball, sharing information between countries. I think China let the world down in how they managed the COVID-19 uh, virus at the beginning. So yeah, those are the right lessons, Alex. There's actually two, two real great points that you brought up that I do want to follow up on real quick. Uh, because One of them was, um, the, the, you mentioned uh, technology, like, you know, the benefits that over the past few decades about developing technologies with the internet and things like that. That's a really yes. good point. I mean, we have crazy amounts of, of cyber attack risk now in the world. And, you know, large corporations, Fortune 500s rely on huge data mainframes and things like that, that can be attacked, stolen, taken down. And nobody really says, you know what, let's just revert back to the way it was in 1982. But nobody says that they've at, at some point, um, you know, people seem to agree um, that the benefits that come from improvement and the openness of technology and Internet outweigh the risk. And people, as you said, run around trying to plug up the holes and the risk. They don't try to get rid of the, the benefits we get from the technology. And I also don't see, for instance, you know, and uh, any of the world military saying, you know, all this advanced technology we have in our military, we should go back because they're at risk from enemies. Like they are working on these things to plug up the holes and deal with, yes. with the risk. So it, it's, a, it's an excellent point. I think you brought up that in other areas of logic and discussion, people don't say, well, we should go back to the way it was 50 years ago or get rid of this big benefit we have because it comes with some risk. Yeah. The, the analogy between trade and globalization on the one hand and technology on the other is is a good and useful one both they, they both have the same general effect don't they they allow us to be more productive to raise our standard of living but i think here's the key politically alex they both have uh, redistributive effects don't they uh trade i'm a big booster of trade obviously but it does put pe some people out of work it creates more and better jobs or at least uh, better jobs uh, in the economy without increasing overall unemployment. Same with technology. In fact, uh, the studies that have been done, Alex, show that far more people 
are put out of work because of technolo technological changes uh, than trade and globalization. The politicians are more inclined to tinker with trade and globalization because they have some ready levers, right? right They've got right. a hammer and they want to bang on the nail. And that is tariffs and, and other things. It's a little harder to control technology, although you have people wanting to tax robots, don't you? Raising the specter that will all be put out of work. And I think those are, uh, I don't think those are things to worry about either. So yes, think, think, of, think of the way we handle technology and apply those lessons to trade and globalization. And I think we'll be a lot better off. And I actually think that's an excellent place to take a break. So we're going to do that right now. Everyone, you're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Dan Griswold today. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions and feedback to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. A special thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Joe Aragona, John Robson, and Ken Dubian. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to the Curious Task. I'm speaking with Dan Griswold today. Dan, I think the first half of our conversation did a very good job of pretty much providing the backdrop for everything we're going to discuss even, even further from here. Um, you've mentioned it actually one or once or twice in the first half of our conversation, but now I think it's time to, to dive right into it. So so let's talk about the, the Great Depression for, for a little bit here. So why is that relevant to this conversation? Well, because when we compare COVID to the Great Depression, and maybe we'll even talk about the 2008 financial crisis, the, the point here is that right now, what we're living in, in here in 2020, this isn't the first time we've seen America face some sort of crisis on the one hand, and on the other hand, start resorting to a stronger protectionist attitude and then actually act on that attitude. And I think the Great Depression is an example of another time uh, that a strong America first mentality took over and, and a bunch of people were calling for lots of government action. So why don't you get into that? Why don't you draw a little bit of a comparison here between what we're kind of seeing today in trade during during a crisis and quite frankly, just even in the past couple of years with Trump and, and, and things that uh, the United States and Canada and other countries have gone through before? Yeah, I mean, the Great Depression was uh, a huge cataclysm economically and, and reverberated in all sorts of aspects of, of life. And you're hearing it referred to, you know, uh, with the COVID-19 virus affecting the economy in, in Canada, the United States, uh, throughout the developed world. You're hearing comparisons uh, to the Great Recession of 2008, 2009, but sometimes to the Great Depression. And... Uh, Alex, I think when, when you talk about the Great Depression in terms of the contribution of trade policy to it, there is some relevance to today, although we shouldn't overplay it. Um, you know, free traders, with some justification, point back to the Great Depression and say, we don't want to go there again. And trade policy did play a part of that. You know, just the quick history lesson. And by the way, the, the ultimate authority on this is Douglas Irwin of Dartmouth University. He wrote a wonderful book uh, that came out recently called Clashing Over Commerce, a, a history of US trade policy. I recommend it to everybody. He's also written books on trade policy in the Great Depression. And Erwin uh, convincingly argues that uh, the Smoot-Hawley Tariff Bill of 1930, which was Congress's last spasm of protectionism, uh, they thought it would 
stave off a what seemed to be a mild recession at the time. Uh, but of course, it was followed by the Great Depression. Well, it didn't do any good, it certainly didn't do any good, the Smoot-Hawley tariff bill. Uh, but it would be a stretch to say it caused the Great uh, Depression. No, it didn't. The stock market crash didn't. What did is a perfect storm of government folly having to do with a contracting money supply, uh, increasing tax rates, regulation of the private economy, uh, and trade policy thrown in to make it worse. But I think some of the relevant lessons from the Great Depression for today, Alex, uh, probably the most relevant one is uh, other governments will retaliate when you raise trade barriers. You know, uh, the president has, President Trump has a trade advisor named Peter Navarro, who if anything is in my view, worse than Trump on trade. He is the president's Rasputin on trade, I must say. Um, he's just terrible. And he is a longtime China hawk who's written books with a subtle title of Death by China. <laughs> so- <laughs> Light touch. Uh, yeah. He said, uh, I think you, you you could Google it going back a year and a half ago or so when the trade war was just starting. He said, oh, other countries won't retaliate. Uh, the, the U.S. market is too lucrative. Well, guess what? Other countries retaliated about as fast as the Trump administration raised tariffs. Other countries retaliated against us, including uh, Canada, mm -hmm. Western Europe, uh, China, of course, and that had all sorts of negative ramifications, right? U.S. farm exports plunged because of the retaliation. Well, uh, in the Great Depression, uh, the damage was done on a broad front. One was just the U.S. raising its tariffs. Although, as Doug Irwin points out, when you go into a Great Depression and you have deflation, a lot of our tariffs at the time weren't ad valorem percentages. They were a per item, right? 10 cents per bushel or something. If the price of that drops by half, that per piece tariff is doubled, hasn't it? You're paying the same 10 cents on something that is half the price. So that was a big part. But also a lot of the damage from the trade wars in the 1930s were other countries retaliating against the United States. An interesting little historical side note, Alex uh, Doug Irwin develops this. Canada retaliated pretty vigorously against the United States, somewhat to our surprise. I don't think we knew our Canadian neighbors as well as we should have. Uh, and that was very damaging to the United States and to Canada. Uh, just, uh, as I said, a lose-lose situation uh, against agriculture and uh, manufactured products. So Bottom line on the Great Depression, it was a disaster. We never want to repeat it. We have learned some lessons on monetary policy and other things. We've learned some lessons on trade policy. We came out of World War II and Canada, the United States, and, and the other Western powers, right, engaged in the GATT. And we've been generally liberalizing up until uh, the, the Trump era. We'll see if it's an anomaly or some sort of populist uh, sea change. I certainly hope not. But looking back on the Great Depression, one lesson was other countries will retaliate. That's one more reason 
not to engage in trade wars. And, and when we talk about this idea of retaliation, like I'll bring up another idea here as well. So I guess I'm not sure if this is retaliation per se, but it's it's still this idea of using trade as a weapon. So for instance, some people say that I have been saying that after all this COVID-19 business is over, you know, one thing that we can do is slap even more tariffs on China or, or choke them a little more for, for basically punishing them for, for, you know, allowing COVID to get to get where it's at. And I find that when we talk like this and also talk about the things uh, you mentioned as well, this idea of retaliation and, and states versus states and taxation tariffs, 10 cents per bushel and stuff like that. I find that it's very easy, and you you let me know if you think I'm I'm thinking correctly about this. It's very easy for a lot of people to get wrapped up in sort of this nationalistic speak, uh, but ultimately, in many cases, just like we discussed in the first half of our conversation, the reverse of globalization being positive is closing that up and actually harming people. And I find that people get wrapped up in this whole idea, you know, America is going to win against China, or China is going to win against uh, the states. But really, what we have is is two states taxing each other or imposing measures. In in many cases, the real people are being affected by tariffs uh, and things like that every day. And I think that's really what should be focused on, not this idea that, you know, um, the American Treasury, for instance, pulled in $80 billion of tariff money at some yes. point. I could not agree more. You know, I think we're all patriots. We love our country, right? Canada is a lovable country. America is. Uh, but nationalism is something a little different, and I think it's based on some some wrong ideas. <clears throat> and that is um, trade barriers don't help our country. They help certain people in the country at expense of other people in the country. Uh, our, our president uh, likes to say China is paying the tariffs. And, and your 80 billion figure is about right. We, the U.S. government uh, year in and year out was collecting something like 30 to 32 billion dollars in tariffs uh, up until annually up until the Trump trade war. It's up to 80 billion a year. China's not paying that extra 50 billion. Uh, Americans are paying it. China's paying for it, right? They've lost export markets and it has reduced their standard of living. But all those studies I mentioned earlier, they all uniformly found that Americans, American importers and ultimately American consumers are paying pretty close to 100% of the cost of those tariffs. So if that's putting America first, <laughs> to sock Americans with a $50 billion tax bill for their consumption of imports, then uh, count me out. I think the, I think to me, the enlightened patriotic position is to say, let's adopt policies that is good for America, the American economy, and American citizens. And that clearly is free trade, unilateral free trade, I would say, ultimately, let's get rid of our trade barriers, regardless of what other countries did. Canada did that about 10 years ago. You had a bill uh, that eliminated tariffs on over 1,500 imports of industrial supplies that your manufacturers use to be more competitive in global markets. Uh, that's the right way to go. Trade agreements have a role. I'm a big uh, fan of NAFTA, maybe a little less of uh, NAFTA 2.0 USMCA, but that's another story. Right. Whole other episode. <laughs> uh, but, but yeah, right. But, but free trade is in virtually every nation's best interest. We've known that since Adam Smith. And you know, they joke about economists saying on the one hand, on the other hand, but Alex, you know, economists, 95% of them anyway, Peter Navarro's uh, an exception, 
uh, believe that free trade is the best policy for nations that that adopt it. And I guess for for people like us, uh, you know, it's hard to sometimes go around making that case because, you know, in, in many cases, uh, ten that let's say ten thousand jobs at a GM plant somewhere is something very tangible. You know, people see it on the news; they like yes. that stuff. If there's a high tariff put in, let's say, against imports of cars, again, just running with an example, making up, and then oh, maybe there's also a subsidy given in some sort of state, and we say, look, ten thousand jobs. Uh, we're we're the people that have to come in the room and say, well, look at this price that has raised across the entire country for everybody. L- look at these subtle adjustments here that is now affecting everybody. So we're ultimately, I suppose, battling the perception that's created when you have concentrated benefits but dispersed costs. You're exactly right. That is that is one of the uh, one of the crosses we bear as advocates of free trade. Right. The the benefits tend to be dispersed where the costs are localized. But I would say also with the costs, they're they're temporary, right? We we only have one China shock that works its way through the system, and we're better off. We're richer as as a society. And getting back to our discussion earlier about technology, if you look at the number of people who lose typically, you know, in a pre-COVID, everything's different now. But right. when things were relatively normal uh, a year ago, uh, there were people losing their jobs to trade. But there are a fraction. I think the right estimate is something like 3% of people displaced from their jobs over the course of a typical month or year are displaced because of trade. The, the rest of them, they're displaced because of technology, changing consumer tastes. We just decide we're going to do more shopping online. Uh, we don't like this. Uh, we're driving less or something like that. And uh, to argue that we should stop trade because it's disrupting uh, jobs for some people. Well, you should, to be consistent, argue we should stop technology. We should stop making, letting people make consumer choices. And we know that would be a a disaster. I guess it is sort of funny that when you talk to somebody, let's say you're you're talking to somebody about buying a a new cell phone or buying a tablet or buying a TV. Ultimately, you know, people say, well, well, I'm judging things based on quality and price, not 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 simply where where they're built. And of course, sometimes people have a have a local business bias, which is okay sometimes in the micro. But but ultimately, people are looking at the benefit they're getting from this product and hopefully the lowest price. Yet when we talk, when people go from the micro to the macro, they sometimes get pulled into this 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 farce ultimately of somehow convincing themselves that because it may be double the price, but because it's built, you know, in in a state next to me, this is good news. I just find yes. it kind of interesting. So, of course, as you said, again, there's there's a limited set of people that are benefiting from this. Hopefully, the people that are being employed and also these one or two corporations that may be getting the protection. But again, across the board, uh, I guess it's important for people not to be not to be sucked into what is ultimately like a, a, a fallacious argument. Correct. And when we decide to buy to switch from buying one type of product to another, we may be putting somebody out of a job. But somehow we feel it's okay if you're switching from one American provider to another one. The fallacy there is when you buy an import, ultimately, whether it's American dollars or Canadian dollars, those dollars come back to the national economy. Why? Because, well, that's really ultimately what they're for, to buy assets, goods, and services uh, in, in the country issuing the currency. So when I buy an import, uh, that money ultimately gets spent somewhere else in the United States. Uh, and and typically, and here's the magic of trade, I'll be importing something that tends to be of a lower productivity 
enhancing type technology, you know, furniture or clothing or something like that, the dollars will come back to buy uh, a jetliner or semiconductors or high-end financial and other services. So we call it trade for a reason. When, when we import something of value, ultimately the foreigners will come back to us and want something of value from us, i.e. an export or an asset, which we also call, by the way, inward investment, uh, which is is good for an economy as well. Another thing that to bring up is this idea that, you know, there's this concept of uh, winning as the United States in a trade discussion, right? When we start framing this discussion in a trade war or trade battle, we have winners and losers. Um, you know, so one thing I liked in one of the articles you did is you actually took a look at one of these, the metrics that we're supposedly supposed to judge who's winning by, again, supposedly according to other people's logic. So so the question then becomes, so how much winning really is happening with the direction the Trump administration's taking? And, and, and you said in an article you posted uh, that was posted on the, the Mercatus website, you said, Quote, even President Trump's favorite scorecard, the U.S. trade balance, has moved toward an even larger deficit under his policy. So if we're really going to just assume their logic for just a few minutes here, yes. the, the golden metric doesn't even seem to be going the way they want it to at this point. Correct. Now, of course, the, the COVID-19 virus, that was written pre-COVID-19. So right, we've right. had an interesting development. But you're right. One of the ironies of Trump's trade policies, you know, the, the president... Uh, at, at a State of the Union earlier this year was bragging uh, with justification at the high level that the U.S. economy was operating at, uh, low unemployment, uh, uh, increasing GDP. Well, what was the backdrop? <clears throat> China hadn't really changed its policies. We're still operating under NAFTA 1.0, which I thought was a good agreement, good for all three of our North American countries and a trade deficit that was 20% higher than the one he inherited from the last administration. Now, I think the trade deficit uh, is, is virtually meaningless. I mean, all a trade deficit is, it just means we have a capital surplus, right? Uh, they're mirror images of each other. If we're buying more goods and services from the rest of the world than we export, we have to be selling more assets than we buy, which is known as a capital surplus. And guess what, Alex? Uh, when an economy is doing well, consumers tend to buy more, both domestically and imports. The world tends to like to buy assets in that country. They want a piece of the action, uh, whether it's treasury bonds or, or stocks or direct investment building a factory. And this brings us up to date with COVID-19. When an economy tanks, People buy less of everything, including imports. So demand for imports falls. Uh, investment falls, including foreign investment. And it happens every time. We had trade surpluses during the Great Depression. Uh, when we went into the Great Recession in 08 and 09, the U.S. trade deficit fell dramatically. And guess what's happening to the U.S. trade deficit today? With China and the rest of the world, it's shrinking. Now, the administration's bragging about it not realizing the irony that this metric of success that the president has been aiming for is really a sign of distress of the U.S. economy. There's no getting around it. And I mean, ultimately, like you said, most almost all economists will tell you that the trade deficit is nothing to be concerned about. As a matter of fact, it's it's all often dismissed as something that more of a matter of accounting than anything. And in the micro, I suppose you could think about it as like, you know, 
maybe it's a sloppy example, but I technically have a trade deficit with the grocery store. I don't remember yes. the last time I imported, I exported anything to them. You know, I think I maybe actually, I don't think I've ever exported anything to a grocery <laughs> store. And I think my life's pretty good. As a matter of fact, I think every, I'm looking around the room right now. I think everything in this room is from some supplier. I have a massive trade deficit with, and I'm, my life's fine. So I, I think that just scales right back up to the macro too, right? Like it's ultimately a, a method of accounting we're talking about here, not something to, to pin our well-being on. That's a whole different economic discussion. You're exactly right. You know, our our president. I sound like I'm picking on him, but on trade, he's uh, just got some bad ideas. He 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 says when we import, you know, a hundred billion dollars worth of stuff from another country, they're ripping us off, and we're losing that. Not realizing, one, we gain from those goods and services. Uh, we're the ones that get to drive them and eat them and wear them. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're a direct benefit, but also those dollars come back. They circulate, right? Um, <clears throat> when you come out of the grocery store and your cart is full of $100 worth of groceries, do you grumble that you've been ripped off by the grocery store? You've lost $100? No, <laughs> you're glad to be going home. What a miracle. You're going home with all these wonderful products that you never in a year's toil could have brought together for yourself. But through the miracle of trade, both domestic and international, we can enjoy the abundance of the world uh, every day and specialize in what we do best, right? Doing podcasts, writing studies. It's great. And to sum things up on the specific, on, the, on the the trade war area, specifically when it comes to the Trump administration, I know I, I figured we, we may as well, we'll do it this way because, uh, I've seen this a lot, on, especially on American newscast shows and a lot of American press. People like to do the grading system, right? How would you rate this president, that president, A plus, B minus? I have a feeling that you would give the, uh, the, the Trump trade policy an F. I have a quote from you here. You say, with less than a year to go before the next election, President Trump's trade policy must be declared a spectacular and expensive failure. And I think the expensive word is... There's a lot riding on that one there. Yes. Now, uh, it's not my job to say politicians are good or bad. I, I actually like a lot of things the president's done on on tax reform and deregulation and some of his judicial appointments. But yes, on trade, his ideas have been bad for 30 years, and we're seeing the results. And, you know, Alex, I wrote those words uh, before um, Congress passed the USMCA right NAFTA 2.0 before the China deal, I don't think those change anything. I think USMCA, while it removed the uncertainty, we're going to have a duty-free uh, trade zone in North America, and that's it's been good and it's going to be good. But I think NAFTA was a slight, uh, USMCA was a slight step back because of the, primarily because of the more restrictive auto rules of origin, which actually will subtract from overall production. I think the China deal that the president announced, by the way, that's probably crumbling before our eyes because China is not going to be able to afford to buy those extra products that we forced on them in a managed trade approach. So yes, I stand by that. The president's trade policy has been a spectacular failure. And the sooner we uh, consign that to the dustbin of history, the better off America will be as a nation and our, our people and the rest of the world. And, and the section of conversation I, I'd like to end off on is ultimately whether or not this this whole thing is really supposed to be happening from the White House. Uh, you bring up an article you wrote for The Hill. You said the Constitution gives Congress, not the president, authority to impose duties on imports and to regulate 
commerce with foreign nations. You made sure to remind people that in that article you wrote. And of course, yeah. we've touched on it before. We know that the executive branch is supposed to deal with things like national security in a crisis and sometimes has the power to act quickly. But but ultimately, I think the scales have been tipped a little too far in, in favor of that of that branch when, when they could start slapping tariffs on everything. It seems like you're saying that as well. You're trying to remind people that at the end of the day, this is not not the president's business to sit at the desk and, and pull the levers of tariffs and trade. It is not what our founding fathers envisioned. Uh, Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution could not be more clear. The authority is vested in Congress uh, to control the level of duties, to regulate commerce with foreign nations. Now, we've, we've had in our divided government system here, our, our balance of powers, I should say, uh, the president has over the last decades, taken a more active role in trade policy, you know, negotiating trade agreements that, by the way, have to come for an up or down vote with Congress, who ultimately arrests with Congress. But yeah, this, besides being an economic failure, uh, besides uh, exacerbating international tensions, the president has run roughshod over the U.S. Constitution. Those trade laws that I mentioned early on they're, they may be problematic in and of themselves, uh, but the president has gone far beyond whatever they were intended. Section 301, for example, the one we're using against China, it has specific language that says the U.S. tariffs have to be proportional to the foreign trade practice that is coming under scrutiny and aimed at that foreign practice. The president's gone far beyond that. So yes, ultimately, I hope what comes out of this is one, some expensive lessons in terms of economic policy. But I would like to see the U.S. Congress take back its rightful constitutional authority over trade policy, because we've seen what happens when a president is left free to abuse that authority. And, and whether someone agrees with that part of the Constitution or not, it's clear that it was not intended that the president was allowed to wake up one morning and, and, and start to think of trade in, in, in the way that we're seeing, for instance, Donald Trump do it. There was clearly a reason uh, and an understanding by the framers of the Constitution as to why ultimately that this power should be, be dispersed over over Congress, which ultimately is the Senate and the House of Reps. Right. So this was the idea here is that the people were supposed to be making these decisions. Correct. Now. Uh, the Smoot-Hawley tariff bill that we talked about, that was the last time Congress rolled up its sleeves and actively rewrote the U.S. tariff code. And that didn't end up very well. So what came out of that was a compromise where the administration is involved in negotiating agreements with ultimate authority resting with Congress. And that is the compromise. It didn't violate the Constitution, uh, but it was a way of the administration being able to exercise leadership. And that yielded 70 years of post-war trade liberalization, rising global prosperity, and a general relative peace, <laughs> certainly among the Western powers. The one uh, thing that people didn't count on, uh, I think this is the first time in American history, and I asked Douglas Irwin this, and I believe he confirmed it, where we've had a president who's more protectionist than Congress. Huh, that's interesting. <laughs> that was okay. the wild card. Uh, I don't think our founders envisioned a President Trump, certainly not on trade policy. Uh, and so that's another lesson. Maybe Congress will be less inclined to give any president such sweeping authority over trade policy, because as we're seeing almost on a daily basis, latest news is presidents threatening a whole new round of tariffs against uh, China. 
and this is doing no good for the United States uh, in 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 any way. And I think over the, uh, over the past many decades, there's been a, a lot of power slowly pulled into the executive branch that the founders did not think were a good idea to be there in the first place. Correct. So Dan, our time has pretty much went down here. We, we've talked about a lot, so let, let's bring it full circle and try to put a finer point point on our exploration of the question here today. So so in every episode, we ask we ask the guests to have the last word and, and tie it up. So let me ask you. What do you hope are ultimately the main takeaways here for someone listening to you on whether you can win a trade war? If we could sum it up. Well, the short answer is no. <laughs> uh, decades, centuries of economic experience and theory say that trade barriers are a loser first and most immediately for the country that imposes them, including their consumers and lower income consumers because they spend a higher share of their budget on imported goods. But it's bad for countries in a broad sense, our broader productive capacity, our relations with other nations. Um, and so for all those reasons, uh, free trade is the right policy for certain reasons here in the United States. We've achieved trade liberalization through agreements, and those are good, multilateral, regional like NAFTA, uh, and bilateral agreements. So. Trade, trade wars are for losers. They produce losers. Uh, they're not good and easy to win. They're bad, and you're guaranteed to lose. And we're seeing that every day. And I think that's a great place to end it. So, Dan Griswold, thank you very much for joining me on The Curious Task today. Thank you. This episode of The Curious Task was produced by Alex Aragona and Sabine L. Chidiak. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you heard on today's episode was created by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona. Thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task.